A shock algorithm is a piece of code in an internet platform that regularly promotes distressing content to an individual because they have previously engaged with content of the same theme. Reliant on the personal experience in shock, which is referred to by Healthline as a traumatic event that causes a strong emotional response and may cause physical responses as well. Highly debated to even exist, shock algorithms cycle in and out of our public discourse at highly distressing times. But despite the contested evidence about the grounds on which a shock algorithm might exist, its supposed impact is debated as being nothing more than a simple flaw in a platform's design to being a malicious piece of code that keeps us retained on the platform. So today on the Culture Made of Algorithms, I'm going to work through some of the debates around shock algorithms and how click restraint might be a way of combating being caught in a shock cycle. Salutations, listener. My name is Omar Aline, and welcome to A Culture Made of Algorithms, a podcast that takes a look at our media consumption, the culture producers, and the societies left behind. And today I want to have a conversation about shock algorithms. And I've been inspired to make this for a while now, and with everything going on very recently, I thought this is a perfect time to talk about it again. Now that things seem to be calming down a little bit, that's not a good thing, but the fact that we can all now not be experiencing trauma on a daily basis... I figured it's a good time to talk about it because inevitably this is going to happen again and we're going to be caught in another cycle where we're shocked at something and we need to talk about it. So let's get to the show. Now there was a time in 2014 where my timeline would only be filled with content about Eric Garner's murder. A few weeks later it was the turn of Michael Brown's murder to be featured. A few weeks after that Tamir Rice and only days later it was Michael Brown's turn again. And in those cycles I was often the first to put out information onto my own timeline having scoured the features page for content that was outside of my own bubble. But it didn't take long for that featured page to turn into my own timeline. And from there, I would end up following a number of activists and social commentators who seemed to know what they were talking about. But I also followed people who were on the ground, protesting and experiencing firsthand the police brutality that they were working to stop. I was engaging in debate about the humanity of Eric Garner, Michael Brown and Tamir Rice, trying my best to get others to see that none of these people deserved a death sentence while simultaneously getting a live lesson about racism in America. A few years later, I would experience a different shock when I opened the Twitter app to find the community talking about a video where a woman was defecating on the doorstep of her former lover in Leicester. I offered my response and in return, I saw a flood of jokes about what had just happened. During the many election cycles over the past five years, I've also been forced to confront the distasteful past of several candidates, their parties, the impact of their policies, and the reactions of their supporters. In response, I expressed my disgust at what I was witnessing. I also followed the people with whom I agreed with, and in turn I was rewarded with more information about the societal ills that the other side was taking part in. There was also a time where I found myself consuming an unhealthy amount of content that was related to Yemen. My likes and retweets seeming to feed this unhealthy obsession and it was responded to with more content for me to obsess over. Now these are just some of the tumultuous times I found myself in on social media, mostly bookmarked in my brain by how distressing the content I was consuming. But I was also caught in this cycle of distress, you know, distance and re-engaging that lasted days, sometimes weeks, and I couldn't always contain my sadness to just the app. 
And in the wake of the latest Black Lives Matter protests that have been taking place across the globe, in the wake of news of Breonna Taylor's murder and the unfiltered video of George Floyd's murder being distributed online, many people have found themselves caught in a cycle where they are forced to relive a trauma, learning new ones and then trying to cope with another that's happening at the same time. And in turn, it's raised questions as to how users on social media are caught in this seemingly never-ending cycle of trauma. And we have so little information about the platforms themselves and what goes into them. It means that most of the conclusions we draw are nothing more than best guesses. And in response, some people find it easier to leave the, these platforms at distressing times. But others have stayed put, trying to reverse engineer and decipher the secrets. And as such, based on the little information we do know about the algorithms behind social media platforms, we can make some relatively safe assumptions as to what is happening during these shock cycles. So the logic goes like this. A social media platform is a empty box platform, meaning that none of the content on there is generated by the platform itself. Instead, content has to be generated by the users. And in order to be motivated to create content, Platforms need to reward the creators of these content, uh, well, just put it on there. Well, in order to be motivated to create content and distribute it on that platform, users need to be rewarded for the content that goes on. As such, designers of these platforms know that gamification is an excellent way people feel rewarded. Well, it works in a classroom where children who behave well get gold stars and a treat at the end, but it also works in supermarkets where they can give out prizes and points to their customers and place it on their rewards cards for them to redeem later. So from here, designers implement gamification features such as likes, comments, replies, shares, and whatever other feature they can think of that implies engagements equals some type of score in our little brains. For us, we can translate a high score being a piece of content that has a high number of likes, comments, replies, and so does the algorithm rewarding a high score with a higher score by continuing to share it until it eventually just loses traction. Meanwhile, as these platforms are typically free to use, they must find a way to generate capital on these platforms, simply to just justify the cost of keeping them maintained, let alone the whole model as a business. One way they can generate an income is through the sponsorships and advertisements model. However, it's quite difficult to get advertisements unless advertisers know who they are advertising to. As such, user data is a vital tool that platforms can leverage in order to attract advertisers. In response to this, platforms will attempt to get as much information on their users as possible. To maximize this data set or research pool, depending on how you look at it, designers are encouraged to create systems which keep users engaged on their platforms for as long as possible. Now we know this to mean retention time. Based on a quarterly earnings report, Mark Zuckerberg, CEO of Facebook, made to some shareholders not so long ago. Now, on the other hand, and back to that first piece of logic, platforms know that high scoring content is a reflection of content that users engage with and as such, find it beneficial to show more users that content. And so they do. This is where shock algorithms come in. And it's also where the consensus begins to fragment and becomes highly contested. Because in the first camp of several, the next part of the story goes a bit like this. Shocking content is no different than something being funny and therefore shared multiple of times. It's no different to cute content either. And therefore it is impossible to stop distressing content from appearing on social media feeds because it would mean changing how these platforms work fundamentally. 
that is if they allow shocking content to be featured on their platform in the first place in this context platforms are being consistent with their treatment of all content and shocking content causes us to react like it does with funny and cute content and therefore with us reacting it has increased our engagement and thus fulfills the criteria of being shared by the platform now i'm willing to give this perspective the benefit of the doubt as from this perspective we take our lack of understanding about these systems in place behind the social media platforms and conclude that there must be one general algorithm at play in this case all content is treated the same as are its users and this would reflect a more common belief that the internet, social media, and its audiences are all equally weighted in the truly democratic system that the web is. However, when we already know that platforms have the ability to soft or shadow ban people, content, and accounts, we know that not everyone on all platforms are treated equally. As such, knowing that not all content is shared easily or promoted by the platforms shows that the algorithm is capable of suppressing some content. And a great case study to look at this is how gaming YouTubers went from featuring regularly on the featured page to not really featuring at all, despite having far higher view accounts than what was being shown on the featured page. This invites the second camp of concluders who believe that the censorship is a feature of a platform, but when it comes to shocking content, it isn't necessary to exercise because the content and the topic has societal value. Now, I'll admit, this is a perspective that I've struggled to grasp with at times, even though at others it's felt like it's completely in my hands. And I think back to the early days where terrorist execution videos were popular on social media before they were banned. Because in this scenario, we are reminded about the national state of terror that we were all experiencing daily and how young people were being groomed to join extremist groups. Now, these videos were important to discuss because people were losing their lives over seemingly fixable solutions, societal issues. However, what quickly emerged was that a conversation could be had about these topics without needing to see someone be executed. In this case, censorship was a good thing because the content did not add to the cultural conversation and a similar conversation could be had with different evidence. And on the other hand, I think about times where censorship has been harmful whether that is in the interest of public safety or simply research and information. In this case, I'm thinking of TikTok's suppression of videos relating to Hong Kong and Black Lives Matter protests. In both cases, documenting public dissent was opening a conversation about systemic oppression, illegal governance and police brutality, topics which were seen as hyperbolic until the evidence came to light and was shared with the rest of the world. In these cases, suppressing popular content directly contradicts the logic that supports the conclusion because not sharing content means people aren't rewarded for contributing to the empty box and thus advertisers do not know who they are selling their products to for an extended period of time. For example, at the time of writing, Black Lives Matter protests have been going on in Portland, Oregon for more than 50 days and it doesn't look like it's going to stop at 60, thankfully. In that time, people have been attacked by police though. They've had water and food restricted by the police. They've been blinded with rubber bullets, burned with flashbangs, had curfews implemented citywide. In this case, suppressing information has prevented people from taking precautions against the projectiles, prevented them from seeking medical assistance and stopped people from safely going home. In which case, upholding a status quo here has caused people to come into avoidable yet very literal harm. The last train of thought here is far more pessimistic though. Here, 
Believers of the school of thought conclude that shocking content is deliberately given extra attention by some platforms in order to increase retention time. This is based on a belief that more attention time equals more cash and more cash means pleasing shareholders and staying afloat as a business a little while longer. As such, the argument is that the algorithm has or is adjusted at appropriate times to show us as much distressing content as it can without making us log off. And at times I feel like believing this argument because quite often I find myself reading distressing content back to back and then suddenly it will show me something funny or amusing and I'm temporarily alleviated from my symptoms of sadness. After that though, the funny content goes straight back to being distressing. And what makes this even worse is that I sometimes log off halfway through this distressing stuff, but the next time I go back onto the content, the feed is refreshed and it seems to go, I seem to keep seeing distressing content right up until I'm literally saying in the next one, if it's going to be sad, I'm going to log off. And in this case, it seems that the platform had learned my limit and then pushed me right to the edge of it the next time I went to use the app. Then there's this massive growth of platforms which rely on being controversial for content. In this case, they, being the people and their accounts, frequently violate community guidelines and terms of service behavior agreements without penalty. Instead, what they tweet becomes a major topic on the platform and its responses become headline news outside of the platform. In this case, the platform receives public publicity and an audience outside of the platform. Naturally, this publicity would benefit the platform as now new people can acknowledge its existence and therefore it becomes in the platform's best interest not to remove public figures from the platform. However, it somewhat falls apart when you consider that some of the major controversial tweeters in a British sense, i.e. Katie Copkins, have been removed from the platform multiple times for violating community guidelines. However, the rebuttal here is that these types of ban come after a platform begins to experience commercial pressure. Take for instance the recent banning of Wiley from Twitter on July 26, 2020. In this case, the lack of swift action taken by the platform saw the musician free to go on an extended anti-Semitic tirade for two days before Twitter took action. In response, a number of high-profile, verified Twitter users conducted a two-day walkout from the platform in protest of the platform's handling of the incident, which has since made national news and placed a negative light on Twitter. However, in each of these perspectives, the agreement is there. Even if the range of agreement differs from fact to theory or oversight to intention, all agree that a shock algorithm exists and is a systematic procedure. So the next question to ponder is, what do we do with this information? On one hand, we could campaign to the platforms we use and petition to have a more robust system in place that would proactively censor information which could be harmful to us. After all, if they know how far we can be pushed on a topic, they should also know what we are being pushed about. This does, however, pose the question of being caught in an echo chamber which only conforms to our confirmation biases. And the dilemma here is that an echo chamber is quite often the opposite to reality. One fantastic example of this is the popularity of liberal, progressive and leftist ideologies on Twitter. In previous election cycles, users of Twitter have been led to believe that a Labour government might win in a general election, only to sadly find that their party has been obliterated the very next day. Conversely, an echo chamber can be the maintenance of a status quo, bringing me back to the critique I made earlier, that the upholding of the status quo can inadvertently or directly harm people and prevent them from getting vital, life-saving information. Additionally, upholding a status quo won't help progress societal attitudes away from a harmful ideology or push them through a difficult time. 
But in the lead up to this episode, I said that this would be my victim blaming episode. And this is the part where I begin to blame you, me, all of us really. Because the truth is, it doesn't matter if a shock algorithm exists on a platform or not. Once we remember that a social media platform is an empty box that relies on us to take part, we have two entry points for which we can combat shock content and by extension the algorithm. The first is at input level. Quite simply, if we do not post the content, the content cannot be shared. Now obviously, this doesn't solve the issue as arguing that people should simply refrain from posting controversial topics would also mean prohibiting the publishing of necessary content. Additionally, this perspective does not address that a lot of the content we see that shocks us is not content that we have created. It does, however, legitimise the perspective that we can exercise restraint when interacting with this content, meaning when we see this content, we do not have to comment on it. This is because in many platform algorithms, comments are seen as a higher score type of interaction because they take time and thought to construct, or at least should. Now, this may be difficult to justify, but when you interact with media, you perhaps unwittingly share it with an audience. And with the audience, you have to be aware why you are showing them this particular piece of media content. Is it designed to inform or are you simply adding your initial reaction with no further development as to what is being shown? In that case, is your disgust necessary to add or does the content speak for itself? This is what is sometimes referred to as click restraint. Now, click restraint is a vital tool in media literacy because it is designed to stop the spread of highly charged and usually false information. However, it is also a vital technique in allowing useful information to surface to the top. A perfect example of what happens when click restraint is not used was when people were posting blackout squares on Instagram and adding the hashtag Black Lives Matter. The dilemma here was that the blackout was designed to showcase support for a wider Black Lives Matter movement, but ended up being co-opted by a social media Black Lives Matter moment. This meant that vital information for Black Lives Matter protesters was being inadvertently suppressed by their supporters and later detractors of BLM. In this instance, click restraint would have allowed the content to be produced, categorised and showcased accurately while simultaneously existing alongside what and who it was in support of. The second perspective is to more obviously not take part, logging off and go and do something else to your day. Now this can be problematic for larger platforms where pertinent issues are expected to be spoken about online and where your silence can be equated to complicity and violence. What is important to remember though, is that by not being online at this time, the critique of your silence is mostly invalid. However, allyship is important during times of dismantling systemic and systematic oppression. So by not taking part, you might inadvertently participating in a suppression of information. Instead, not taking part looks more like not engaging directly with pieces of media that can open your audiences to experiencing more trauma. Now this means using a blog post, a news article or some other form of long piece information that can provide the basis of your post. This may sound counterintuitive, but when you consider that a lot of the experts on these topics have already given their opinion or perspectives on the matter, you kind of realise that what you have to add as a commentator and a reactionary isn't anything revolutionary. As such, it's probably better to just share the experts' content and make better use of everyone's time. Because in one instance, you're not creating 10 new opportunities for your audience to experience trauma by creating a 10 tweet thread. And on the other, you are sharing expert information to people who you want to know more about the topic. It's a win-win. Plus, there's no harm in not taking part in something you don't understand on a platform that you do not know or understand the workings of as well. 
So what are the media consumptive practices, produced cultures and abandoned societies that this episode has been touched on? Well, currently we are consuming media on platforms that we don't understand. At times, this lack of understanding means that when we are faced with difficult information, we don't know how to handle it. In turn, we consume through the grief and quite often share that grief with others. This can then be problematic in an online culture which values performance participation over valuable information. As such, it is difficult to change this behaviour on both a personal and collective level when the platform is deliberately gamified, making our reactions more rewarding than insight. This is perhaps a turn away from the romanticised memory of the past where experts were platformed over the plebeians like ourselves. But truthfully, with so much verifiable information coming from the previously unsupported voice of the masses, it's perhaps a price to pay for a democratic internet. So that's all for this week. Join me on Twitter as at ACMOAPod where you will find the following questions to this week's poll. Do you believe that there is a shock algorithm in place on social media platforms? What is your preferred way to engage with shock content online? How do you find peace after witnessing shock content online? Do you believe online activism is performative or actionable? And as last season, like all of the other polls in this podcast, it will be available for six days after the podcast goes live and your responses will be discussed in the season two finale, which is only three episodes away now. If you want to take part but don't have Twitter, you can email me at aculturemadeofalgorithms at gmail.com, the title of this podcast, at gmail.com, or find me on Vero as at Omar Aline. That's my name, O-M-A-R-A-L-L-E-Y-N-E. And I look forward to hearing from you. In the meantime, though, I encourage you to follow, subscribe, positively rate this podcast and all the other pleasant things you can do to encourage the growth of this podcast. If you know someone who might enjoy the dulcet tones of my voice and the, hmm, that's interesting feel of my content, I welcome you to share it with them because it would be greatly appreciated. But until we meet again where I'll talk about representation, make sure to keep consuming, considering the culture you're a part of and the society you're leaving behind. But most importantly, remember to stay safe. Take care.